0: Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com.
1: Charles Spurgeon used this parable to illustrate the bondage of sin. He said there was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith that was his occupation had to go to work and forge the chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant and was ordered to take it away and make it twice the length. He brought it again to the tyrant, and again he was ordered to double it. Back he came when he had obeyed the order and the tyrant looked at it, then commanded the servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain he had made and cast him into prison. Spurgeon continues with an application. That is what the devil does with men. He makes them forge their own chain, and then binds them hand and foot with it, and casts them into outer darkness.
0: One of the most frustrating and discouraging aspects of the Christian life is struggling with sin. While it's true that we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and sin's ultimate control over us has been broken, we still often find ourselves doing things we hate, saying things that we know are wrong, and feeling attracted to things that we know are evil. At times the battle feels overwhelming. Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. Sin is a reality with which we all must live. No one can escape the struggles we have with rebelling against God's call on our lives. However, it is possible to choose whether one will vigorously fight the battle against the flesh or not. The battle can be overwhelming, but it doesn't have to result in demoralising defeat. How can we have victory in overcoming sin? Let's join Tony as he unpacks three practical strategies that we can use to overcome sin.
1: Red, amber, green is a universal signal. It was introduced the System for Traffic Lights in the UK in 1920. It's been used to grade the dispensing of medicines, school reports, health and safety categories and loads more. Now in this session we're going to apply this signal to three key texts in Romans chapter 6. Let's read from verses 11 to 13. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Here the Apostle Paul brings us to a point where we can see it may be possible for us to advance through life without being held back by sin. It will not go away, but it doesn't need to be our master either. You know, for many centuries, Anglicans, Orthodox and Catholic churches have begun their services with a formal confession, recognising that before we can approach God, we must have clean hands and a pure heart. I recall hearing a visiting African minister comment in a somewhat bemused fashion that he had attended a service in the morning and had said confession. So why did he need to begin our service in the evening with confession again? He just couldn't understand what we would have to confess. Having prayed only eight hours earlier, surely no one had sinned between ten thirty and six thirty services, could they? You know, he was not joking; he was serious. And I sometimes wonder what it would be like to come to the confession and, like going through customs at an airport, have nothing to declare. You know, no conscious sin to confess. Could that ever be possible? Really. It's often remarked, better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. Do as you want and then apologise. Well, that's just not true at all. Better never to sin than ask forgiveness. But as we're aware, the presence of sin remains a reality until Christ returns. So what are we to do? It's something that just won't simply disappear. We're going to have to deal with it daily. Sin is out to get you, to spoil you, even to destroy you, certainly rob you of the blessings in Christ. It's the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who once said, As a reigning king, sin is dead to you and you to it. But as a sneaking outlaw, sin is still lurking within your soul. It's plotting and planning to get back its former dominion over you. And not merely plotting and planning, but it's also warring and fighting to that end. If we sin, we've given in. We've chosen to say yes to temptation, to the flesh. Somewhere along the line, we've partnered with the sinful nature rather than our renewed spirit with Christ. It's Paul who said, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. So the point to make here is that temptation will come, but defeat does not have to. Paul does not want to be complacent or passive about sin. He employs careful imperatives in his instructions on resisting it. You know, these do's and don'ts make an appeal to our will, exhorting us to exercise tenacity in our struggle against sin. You know, Paul never envisages a passive spirituality, a sort of, you know, let go and let God, or don't strive. That's utter nonsense. Now, John Owen, the luminous Puritan theologian, he was a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell and the Chancellor of Oxford University. He wrote in his Manuscript Treatise on Holiness the following. Sin does not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still labouring to bring forth a deed to the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep, they are still. So ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even when there is least suspicion. Isn't that a truly powerful statement? And, you know, the responsibility of overcoming daily sin is yours and no one else's. Many people want someone else to fight their sin for them. You know, in the medieval church, you could actually pay monks to do penance for your sin. And even for the sins of the dead, can you believe it? Well, you know, as if the devotive the of prayers, offerings and masses could speed them along through purgatory. You know, I remember a friend saying he was fed up with people confessing their addiction to porn while not trying to stop using porn. He made this point that, you know, confessing your sin doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to deal with it. It's not for the one who hears the confession to deal with sin, it's for the sinner to stop sinning. You get my point? You know, you must address what you confess. And so ultimately the goal here is not to be thought of as a negative form of overcoming sin, but a positive way to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. You know, twice Paul speaks of the desired goal or fruit as leading to sanctification in Romans 6 verse 19 and 22. You know, we must have this positive goal in mind, not simply a life of, you know, no sin, but yes to sanctification. The possibility of purity, conformity to Christ's holiness. Otherwise, we'll end up as anxious, fault-finding legalists. And we see a lot of that today, don't we? You know, we should be known more for what we're for than what we're against. Like runners in a race, you know, what matters is not the starting line, but actually that finishing line. So how do you make progress in that pursuit? So let's go back to our traffic light. Red means no. Look at Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You see, Paul conceives of sin as a kingdom ruling, controlling and governing our lives and our world. That reign is now broken. The only authority the power of sin has in our life is when we choose to allow it. Paul says we're not to allow it. Now, of course, he wouldn't exhort us to do something that we were impotent to enact. It's up to us whether we give in or not. We can choose to be disloyal to our King Jesus and to be ruled by another. Now, did you know that in the Cultural Revolution in China, the authorities tried unsuccessfully to change the coding of traffic lights and given their commitments to the national red flag, you know, the Chairman Mao's red book, they wanted the colour red to be seen as positive, not as a stop or you know, you can't go any further. So the government changed the order of the colours of the traffic lights and made red formally meaning stop to actually mean go. Well, as you can imagine, this was a real disaster. People were simply too programmed to interpret the red traffic lights as anything other than stop. And I guess in our cultural moral revolution, people want to say red is green. They're morally colourblind and want to say that sin is not sin. They call that which is evil good and that which is good evil, as we read in Isaiah 5.20. But red is red. You know, sin is sin. Stop is stop. And Paul wants us to see a red and stop sinning. And Paul wants us to see a red and stop sinning. We read in Romans chapter 6 verse 13, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. And it's very interesting because the term Paul uses for for offering or presenting yourself is the Greek word baristemi, which is a conjunction of two words. You've got the first part, par, which is a preposition meaning beside, and the second part, histemi, which is the verb for to stand. And so very simply, do not present yourself to sin literally means do not stand alongside sin. And we can rightly understand from that, that means do not put any part of your body, your eyes, your mind anywhere near it. Do not stand by it. Don't be in the proximity of sin. You know, don't be engaged in the activity of it. We need to stay well clear of sin. And so we're right to understand this means to not fill our minds, you know, our thoughts with pride or lust or criticism or the unforgiveness that we feel at times or self-loathing or fantasy or coveting. We're not to use tongues for speech that's unclean. You know, to be critical swearing or or harmful to other people in any way whatsoever there's real wisdom isn't there in the 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 story of the three monkeys you know one has hands covering his eyes one covering his ears and the other one covering his mouth you know see no evil hear no evil speak no evil and occasionally there's a fourth monkey with arms folded meaning do no evil and i think god really does call us to not allow our eyes or our ears or our mouths or our hands to be presented for sin in any way whatsoever you know these are not to become instruments in any way as the greek word indicates you know or tools or weapons for unrighteousness i saw a really powerful movie a number of years ago 127 hours and that tells a story of aaron ralston climbing to the barren utah desert his arm became wedged in a crevice by a falling boulder it was awful and unable to free himself, he was slowly starving to death. So realising that no one was going to come to help him, he was faced with a terrible, awful choice. To do nothing and almost certainly die before he was rescued, or to remove his own arm, to free his body to escape. And the film graphically depicts him applying a tourniquet and cutting off his own forearm. It's shocking, isn't it? Even Jesus said, though, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off in Mark 9.43. You know, take radical evasive action to avoiding sin. You know, well, rather than cut your hands off or pluck your eyes out to avoid sin, Paul offers us a softer option. You know, just don't give your hands or eyes to sin. It's as simple as that. So red means stop. The second colour is amber. Amber. Amber could represent the word think. We read in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And a key word there is to count, consider, you know, consider yourself. And in the Greek for that is logizomai, which has a range of meanings, to, to reckon, to count, to maybe compute, to calculate, to take into account. Here, though, it refers to a deliberate and sober judgment of who we are in Christ. You know, Christians are to constantly take account of themselves, to know themselves in the light of the gospel and in the sight of God. You know, we are crucified with Christ, aren't we? Therefore, we must live as dead to sin and now alive to God. And so when sin tempts us, when old patterns of Adam's flesh try to influence us, we need to stop and think, you know, I'm a dead man and dead men don't sin. We've got to remember that the old man in Adam is dead. Occasionally, of course, he may appear to be resurrected and desiring to sin all over again, but we need to stop giving it permission to do that. You know, sin often begins in the mind, doesn't it? It's rationalized and from there can send a message to all different parts of our body, you know, and we need to retain the mind to righteousness. You know, reckoning yourself dead to sin is setting your mind, you know, having a a mindset not to sin any longer. The mind controls the will and the will controls the act. And we need to train the minds to think, you know, dead to sin, alive to God. You know, it's good to say that again. Dead to sin, alive to God. You know, there's an ancient story from the 4th century Egyptian Orthodox Church, which really seeks to provoke us to reckon ourselves dead to sin. And So like a young monk came to the saintly Abba Macarius. Father, what is the meaning of being dead and buried with Christ? And Macarius answers, my son, you remember our dear brother Synastas dus, who died and was buried a short time since. Go now to his grave and tell him all the unkind things that you've ever heard spoken to him and that we're glad that he's dead and thankful to be rid of him for he was such a pain to us and caused much discomfort in the church. Go, my son, and say that, and tell me how he responds. Well, the young man went to the grave, spoke as commanded, and then returned. Macarius inquired, how did he respond? The young monk said, somewhat confused, he didn't, he's dead. Well, go now again, my son, and repeat every kind and flattering thing you've ever heard of him. Tell him how much we miss him and how great a saint he was what noble work he did and how the whole church depended on him, you know, and come again and tell me what he says. Well, the young man went again to the grave and spoke all flattering things to the dead man, then returned to Macarius. He answered nothing. He's dead and buried. The old priest said, now you know what it is to be dead with Christ. Praises or curses are nothing to him who is really dead with Christ. Of course, the young monk still remains alive while the dead monk was dead. And while alive, he would be tempted to sin and have the opportunity to sin. Sin is not dead in him. However, the old Abbot Macarius's point here was that the young monk was to live as if the dead to sin, not giving it any credence or control in his life. And to live as if we are dead to sin and if sin is dead, it, it, it is possible as long as we remain in this fallen world and in our inherited Adamic bodies with the flesh programmed sin, you know, groaning and awaiting the resurrected body, you know, the propensity to sin will be present, of course. However, its power is broken. And that's the thing we've got to remember. As we live as those dead to sin, as we walk as those alive to God, sin need not have any influence over us any longer. It's quite amazing because nowadays it's possible for a computer to operate with two different operating systems, whether it's Mac OS uh, and Microsoft Windows, you know, or or Windows and Unix or, or, or what program you have. You know, both are on the hard drive and the one selected over the other. You know, as Christians in not yet resurrected bodies, we carry around an old operating system, I guess, that's in our flesh, that's full of viruses that would have us sin all the time. And while we live under a new operating system, you know, that is holiness and conformity to Christ. We have the choice which one controls us. We do not have to choose sin. We have that choice. And some Christians seek to move between the two. And that's really unhealthy. But we're to reckon ourselves as dead to the old operating system of sin and to refuse its room. And so as a little recap, we got red for stop, we got amber for think, and of course we got green for go. We read in Romans six thirteen, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Sin in a Christian's life is evidence that the person is presenting themselves to sin rather than the presenting themselves to God for the good. They're presenting parts of their, their life, their body, to sin rather than to righteousness. And to present ourselves to sin, we must turn our back on God. You cannot be living a life towards God and at the same time, you know, against you know, against him. You know, Christians must choose to live standing beside God instead of standing beside sin. You know, consciousness of God, gazing on Christ, you know, which would cause all thoughts of sin, surely, to flee. Just as no one would, you know, snort and spit standing beside the Queen of England, who would sin standing beside God? You know, the problem of sin is is really a part of the problem of disorientation from God more than anything else. Holiness is Godward life. We need to start to cultivate a Godward grammar, you know, living a life of and, you know, to and for and by and with and from Christ. A really precious Bible verse that was given to me at my baptism was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. It's really very fitting, isn't it? You know, baptized believers are to present themselves to God. And again, we got the Greek word here, parastemi, you know, remember, standing beside God. Regretfully, for several years following my baptism, there were so many ways that I was not living a Godward posture, but living facing towards sin and my back to God. You know, and that happens from time to time, and I need to deal with that and start facing God and going towards him, going in the right direction. You know, when Old Testament priests were ordained, they were anointed with blood on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and and right uh, a big toe. You know, cleansing and devoting their extremities to God. And we read about that in, of course, the Old Testament and Levit- Leviticus chapter eight, verse twenty three. In Anglo-Catholic churches, when the Gospels read, the people often make the sign of the cross three times on their forehead. Their mouth and over their hearts, symbolizing that their minds, their words, and their affections are consecrated before Christ. And in so many ways, it's important to do this, if not physically, then certainly spiritually, throughout the day, presenting to Christ all of our our body and our minds, offering it all to righteousness, set apart for God. I mean, be reminded yet again the dead man walks in the opposite spirit to the sinful man. You know, a church leader that I know told a person who had confessed addictive lustful sin to him that he was practising the presence of lust and instead should practise the presence of God. And that is wisdom and and practical pastoral advice. It's fantastic. Where to walk in the opposite spirit to sin, where to present our members to righteousness, where once we gave them to unrighteousness. One of my old students from the Slavic Missionary Bible School in Jacksonville, Florida, used to struggle a great deal with black people as she was brutally attacked and raped by a black man on the streets of Jacksonville. It was a terrible situation. And of course, a real fear and a hatred grew strong in her heart that she wouldn't talk to any black people. She wouldn't stand near to a black person, and she'd walk out of a shop if she could see that she was going to be served by, at the counter by a black person. It was really un, a terrible situation, and who could blame her, but also it was a, not very good either, was it? And my friend was, was a real xenophobe and had every reason to be that way, I suppose, given her a horrible experience. But God brought real conviction into her heart, and she has tried to live in the opposite spirit now and did you know today she has no problem speaking to black people and in fact she's got so many black friends which is fantastic her heart is changing where once the accents of black people would grate with her because of that that single experience that she had that now clouded all of her uh, judgments and opinions now made her somewhat racist now you know Uh, It now is drawing her closer to black people and such is the grace of God that can transform a person's thinking. Well, I'm so proud to tell you that my sister has gone to West and Central Africa on evangelistic missions and she continues to pray for black people across the world. God has really turned that situation around and for the good, praise the Lord. You know, practice makes perfect. My younger son, Jacob, well, he's had guitar lessons and he enjoys the endless repetition of chord structures and their, you know, placing on on the frets. And all this format in his brain, which, you know, is its finger memory, isn't it? The more he practices, the more immediate, natural and effortless playing becomes for him. You know, sin is often a programmed habit. It really is programmed like an auto reflex of the flesh you know, and members of our body and our minds, you know, uh, all respond to it. Holiness, though, can actually become a real habit through habitually presenting yourself and every part of your body and your mind to God. You know, on the 29th of October 1941, it was Winston Churchill visited his old school Harrow, and at that time Britain, hard-pressed by the Nazis. Churchill gave what became a very famous speech in his own characteristic style. And I'm not going to do any um, imitations of his voice or anything, but he did simply say, never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honour and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. This is Paul's approach to the problem of persistent sin. Never give in to sin. Never, 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 never. In sins large or petty, never surrender. And so there are your three colours. Red for stop, amber for think, and green for go. Go towards God. And God bless you.
0: We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.